Well, good morning, everybody. I'm, I'm not Robert, although we kind of dress similar today, so I can see. I have less hair than he does, so that's how you can tell the difference between the two of us. Um, but I'm very happy to be here today and, and, um, and doing the teaching this morning. And um, we're going to be in John chapter 5, so if you have a Bible under your chairs or on you, you can pick that up and look for, uh, for John chapter 5. And while you do that, I'm going to talk about another book that I've been reading this week, a book, uh, it's really just a leisure book. Um, and Nate Ribeiro actually is the one who lent it to me after he finished. He said it, he suggested it. So I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Are You My Mother? Um, it's a really exciting, um, interesting book to read. I think, anybody have this book as a kid? Any, anyone familiar with this book? Great. Uh, so if you haven't, if you haven't read it before, um, it's basically about, um, I, I guess about, it's about the, the world's dumbest bird, I think. It's the best way to describe it. We've, You've got this bird that lives in a bird's nest with its bird mom, uh, but somehow it gets separated from, from the mama bird. And every page is this bird going to a new animal or a new thing, and he asks, are you my mother? And the answer is always no, and each page is a new animal or a new thing, and the answer is always no. And surprise, surprise, spoiler alert, the book just keeps continuing until he gets reunited with baby mama back in the baby nest, and that is where he finds rest uh, and comfort. And I actually was reading this book to my kids, and um, it made me think of uh, the last sermon series that we went through in, in January, which was called uh, Rest. And does anybody remember what the Hebrew word for rest is? Remember? Close. Shabbat. Uh, but you're thinking Shabbat Shalom, which is also important. And Shabbat is where we get the word Sabbath from, and, and Shabbat means rest. And we are created, just like that bird was created, to be in connection with its bird mom, we are created as spiritual beings to be in connection with our spiritual dad, who is God. Um, the problem is, just like that bird, sometimes we have a tendency to find like, really important deep rest in things other than our relationship with God. And we think, oh man, I would just really experience rest, and I'd really feel okay if my bank account just hit this level, and then I'd be okay. And then, I'd, then I would experience rest. If I could just like win the lottery, or if I could just make this much money, or if I could just max out my 401k contributions just now as a 35-year-old, I could, that, that would make me feel really good. Or if I could just get a fiancé, that's it. I don't even have to finish getting married. I just need a fiancé for a little while for some social credibility. That would be, then, then I could rest, right? Or if I just had a bigger dining room where I could have people over and entertain uh, then, I would be, then I'd feel like I'd have everything and everything would be okay. Or if I could just get this next step in my career. Or if I could just hit retirement at this age. right? Or if I just had a little bit more power. Or if I just wasn't in so much pain. If, if I could just have that, then I could have a restful spirit. Right? And just as crazy it is, as it is for a bird to go up and ask a tractor, an excavator, are you my mother? It's also kind of crazy for us to think that we can find spiritual rest in a non-spiritual thing. Does that make sense? Right? So we're created to find that deep spiritual rest in our, in our relationship with our spiritual creator, with God. Not in all that other stuff. Um, and so that's why I was thinking this. It made me think of that sermon series on, on the Sabbath, or which was called Rest. And in, actually, in Jewish culture, on the Sabbath, you'd go up to people and you'd say, Shabbat Shalom, which means... Uh, may, the, may experience the peace of God and rest in God. So shalom is peace, is peace. Shabbat is, is rest. So it's kind of like saying, enjoy the peace of the rest in God. 
But we have a tendency, just like that bird, to get separated from, from the mama bird. Like, we, we go away from God, and we try and find these other things. And so, and God knows that. Like, we're humans, and he's God, and he's holy and perfect, and, and we're not. So he knows we have a tendency to do this, but he loves us, and he wants us to be in the nest with him. He wants us to, to find rest in him, and only him, that deep spiritual rest. All that other stuff, by the way, is important, and it's good. And I think they're gifts from God, right? But they're not designed to provide us with rest. We shouldn't find peace in those circumstances. We should find peace in the fact that we have a God who gives us these good gifts. Um, and we have a tendency not to do that, though. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. And sometimes we do, and sometimes we don't. And I think part of life and growing up as you know, a Christian is figuring out how to do that more and more and more. And so God sets a framework in place called the Sabbath for us. And he says, every week, I want you to not focus on anything else, but just focus on resting in me. And how different would our lives be if we had one day out of seven where the entire day we just thought about what God provides for us and, and just the security that we have in our relationship as one of his kids? Do you think that would make a, an impact on your life? If we could just do that for one day. But it is easy to do that for one day? No. And so God makes the Sabbath uh, a law. It's a Jewish law. And so he says, you've got to do it. And what that looks like practically is like you're not engaging in achieving those other things that, that we seek to provide us with spiritual rest. And so, I mean, and in practice, that looks like you take a day off of work. You're not working towards um, making more money to give yourself peace. You're not working towards trying to find a, be in a relationship with somebody to get you peace. We're not working towards trying to uh, keep up with the Joneses. We're not working towards trying to get a new uh, raise or a new title at work. But we are separating ourselves from those things one day a week so that we can recognize and just kind of sit in the security and the rest in God. And so the Sabbath really is a, it's a framework. It's not about not working on a day. It's about engaging with a spiritual dad where we can experience rest on a day. And there's some people, and we, we, we um, heard from the clients that when they're reading John chapter 5 today, that I think there's some folks who get that, and there's some folks who maybe don't get that. And maybe they view the Sabbath as something that is just a really rigid rule. That, that the more, if we follow this rule then that will get us into God's peace. It's about following the rule. And that's a little short-sighted. It's like not being able to see the forest through the trees. And we see that in today's interaction um, in John chapter 5. Um, and so this current sermon series we're in is called Reveal. And so, so each Sunday we're looking at a different section of the book of John. And that, it reveals something to us about the character of, of who God is. And so we can expect... Um, that today. And what is revealed uh, about Jesus in John chapter 5 here is that Jesus is the Son of God and he is God, and he will tirelessly work, even on the Sabbath, to bring his kids back into his nest. Um, And the scene starts out at a pool, and it's called Bethesda. Interestingly enough, Bethesda in Hebrew means house of mercy, which is called mercy house. Kind of interesting. Um, and it's a really nice place. The pool itself is probably the size of this, the floor plan of this building. Uh, it's a man-made pool. There's water in there, obviously. Um, and there's these big rock steps that go down into the pool. There's archaeological like, evidence. The pool is still there. Like, you, you can go see it. Um, it's empty, but you could go there. And, uh, and there's five colonnades all around the side of the pool. So there's four sides. And then there's a big one going down the middle. Uh, and there's water in this pool, and on occasion the water gets stirred up. And we don't quite know what's going on, if there's people stirring the water, if it's kind of a natural 
kind of thing that happens. But what we do know is that there are people who claim that they've got a physical need, and when they get into the water, when it is stirring, they receive mercy. They receive healing. That's why it's called the Bethesda Pool. It's the, it's the Pool of Mercy. Now, it's located in the city gates of Jerusalem. It's pretty close to the temple, which is the most important part of Jerusalem, uh, which means the real estate's pretty good. It's next to the sheep gate, which doesn't mean that it smells and it's stinky. It, it means that the sheep that are brought in for sacrifice or brought in for commerce come in through that gate. So there's activity there. So it's kind of a convenient place to be. Um, and it probably would be a nice place to hang out if it wasn't for the clientele who are at that pool. Because who is going to be the people, who are the people that need the healing? Who are the people that have physical needs where they need to spend as much time as possible around this pool so that when they see the water moving, they can dive in? I'll tell you who. It is the powerless. It is the blind and the lame and the paralyzed. And I call them the powerless because they are not able to support themselves. They're not contributing to society. Uh, their primary goal, their primary need is for physical healing. And so it's kind of the desperate or the marginalized of society. That's who you're finding at this pool, except on today, because we find somebody else at the pool, which is Jesus. And all these guys are at the pool waiting to experience, hoping to experience mercy and healing. And healing does happen that day, but not through the water. Right? Let's see what happens. Uh, in, in 5 chapter 1, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went to Jerusalem, and there's a pool um, in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, he knew that he had already been there for a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? And the sick man answered, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and he walked. And so what we see here is Jesus meeting the powerless of a society. And not only is he meeting the powerless, not only at the pool of Bethesda, but he like seeks out the most powerless of the powerless. He goes for the guy who has been paralyzed for 38 years and who doesn't even have the means or ability to get into this water, but he's still there. I mean, that's how desperate he is. He's still hanging out at this pool that he can't even get in. It's his only hope to experience any kind of physical healing. And he is the one that Jesus chooses to approach. And he asks him, do you want to be healed? Uh, and, and he says, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool and I can't get in the pool myself. It's too crowded. And that's his response. And what I think when I'm reading this is, you know, dude, Jesus asked you a yes or no question. So you answer that with a yes or a no. And I'm a, I'm a high school teacher and I've often have students who are um, just in despair and they come after school, and the test is the next day, and I'll say, uh, do you want some help like studying for your test? And they'll be like, well, what's the point? I'm just going to fail it anyway. And I'm like, that's not what I asked you. I asked you if you want help. So if you want help, tell me you want help, and I will help you make a study guide. I made the test, and I will help you. But what I'm doing is I'm like, I, I need you to shake out of the desperation. I need you to shake a little bit and just say, yes, I need help. And, and the reason I do that is because I think I have a hard time giving people mercy. Instead of saying, you know what? Don't worry about it. I'll help you make the study guide. I, what I say is, I asked you a yes or no question. So say yes. If you, and I do the same thing in my house. My wife and I, are not, often we have opportunities to show mercy to our kids. Mostly Zach at this point. And the way that we show him mercy is by, uh, in, in his deepest, darkest moments, 
which is when he cannot open the uh, fruit snack bag, which <laughs> isn't designed on purpose so that two-year-olds can't and three-year-olds can't open them, I think. Um, and so he'll just try and open it and just get frustrated and just collapse on the ground. And, uh, and I'll say, do you need help? And he'll, he'll just start crying. And I'll say, say, help, please. And if you say, help, please, I will help you. But you have, to sh- I have, you have to shake out of it. You have to say, help, please. And I don't help him unless he says, help, please. And when he says, yes, please, help, then I open the fruit snacks. And all is good. And I've shown him a little bit of mercy. Right? <laughs> Not so at the pool of Bethesda when Jesus is the one offering the mercy. Because when he says to the guy, do you want to be healed? The guy doesn't say yes or no. He says, what's the point? I can't, that's the only way I can get healed is in that pool. And I can't get there, and I've got no friends that can get there. I am desperate. I am powerless. I am friendless. I have a need, and that need cannot be met by me or anyone else here. So what is the point if I want to be healed? And what does Jesus do? How does he respond? Does he say, I asked you a yes or no question? Does he say, you know what, guy? Any human who has existed in the existence of the existence who could help you today is me. And you happen to be born at the exact right time in history and be in the exact right location for me to help you. So just acknowledge that and then I'll help you. Does he say that? No. What does he say to the guy? He says, get up, take your bed and walk. And he offers him mercy. Did the guy have to do anything for the mercy? Was there a prerequisite for the mercy? Is there any work that he had to do to receive that mercy? The answer is no. And that's because when, we are, when we're spiritual beings who are separated from a spiritual dad, there is nothing that we can do. There is no amount of goodness. There is no amount of church attendance. There is no amount of giving to the poor. There is no amount of not cheating that we can do to get ourselves back into that nest. It's a spiritual problem, and there's a spiritual solution. And that solution, thankfully comes from Jesus, who does not require work on our part to do that. We receive his mercy because it is a free gift. And we learn that at Bethesda today. It reveals one of the characteristics of God, that the mercy that he offers does not require anything on your part except receiving it. And I mentioned that this paralyzed guy was the powerless of, was the most powerless of the powerless, right? And oftentimes in the New Testament, when we see Jesus offering mercy to people, it's to those people who recognize that they have a need that they cannot meet themselves. I mean, he hangs out with these people. This is his crowd. This is where he goes. And I think part of, and even last week, we were learning about Jesus with the woman at the well in Samaria. And, you know, he, re- he helped her realize, you have a need. You, you're finding rest and peace. You're tr- looking for spiritual peace and, and deep rest in the opposite sex and, and getting validation from people for being in a relationship. And he's saying there's a living water. You you have a living thirst, a deep thirst, a spiritual need that you cannot fulfill on your own. And those people can't fulfill it for you either. Only I can. And I'm going to offer that to you. And she takes it and she responds with obedience and allegiance and she has faith. And then she spreads the word and more people respond and come to Jesus and offer uh, obedience and allegiance as a result of the mercy that he gives. And I think that's why Jesus hangs out with the marginalized. I think that's why he hangs out with those who are powerless. It's because oftentimes our physical circumstances, not having something, not being able to do something, kind of like primes our heart to receive mercy and to receive grace because we know we can't do anything to help ourselves. And so our heart's like in a position to receive that, that gift. And then we respond in a way. And we respond out of obedience 
We respond with obedience and with allegiance. And I think we see that in this situation too, because the paralyzed man receives God's mercy and then he's obedient. What did Jesus tell him to do? Get up, take your bed, and walk. And so he does it. And some of us might think, well, yeah, of course he does that. That's not being obedient. That's just what you do when you're healed after 38 years and not being able to walk. You walk, and you skip, and you jump, and you run. It's like being stuck underwater, and then somebody finally frees you from being stuck. And right before you get to the surface, they say, go up and take a breath. Well, obviously, you're going to do that, right? And so if he's healing a guy and saying, get up, take your bed, and walk, and then the guy does it, is that really obedience? And I think it is. And I think it is because he doesn't just say, get up and walk. What does he say? Get up, take your bed, and walk. And it's that take your bed part that shows us that this guy is responding with obedience to Jesus. Because take, I mean, the guy's bed at this point, and, you know, at this point in history, and, and this guy's social status, his bed at most is like two pieces of cloth with some goat hair shoved in between. At least it's a blanket. It's a thick blanket. He's not like walking down the street with a futon on his back, right? It's, it's, but it's enough of a thing that when he's carrying it, he's exerting work on the Sabbath. And so Jesus isn't saying just get up and walk. He's saying, receive my mercy and then do what I tell you to do, no matter what. Because this guy is hanging out at this pool near the temple. He knows Jewish law. He knows you can't do work on the Sabbath. And so there's a little quick cost-benefit analysis. Okay, this person is, is going to speak into me, and just through words alone, nothing to, he is not, gonna, he's not offering to roll me into the pool. He just with words alone, he is offering me mercy, and he's going to heal me. But he's telling me to do this thing that I know other people are telling me that we're not supposed to do. So do I trust him, or do I trust these other people? I'm going to go ahead and trust the guy who, with words, can heal 38 years of paralysis. And he gets up, and he rolls up his bed, and he walks. And he's working on the Sabbath. Right? He has received the mercy from God. He did nothing to earn it. He received that mercy, and he's responding by giving his heart. Right? It's kind of like you know that, the verse uh, from that song, that hymn that says, Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it for your courts above. When we receive the mercy, it's like, I'm yours, man. Like, tell me what to do, and I'm going to do it. Uh, and so he responds with obedience. He also responds with allegiance. And we know this because we see how he interacts with the powerful. So he's the powerless. His heart is primed to recognize that he has a need and that he can't meet his own need. But then in this story, we also see the powerful. And those are the Jewish leaders at the time. And it doesn't say in chapter 5 here that they were Pharisees, but they're Pharisee-like at least. And Pharisees were a section of Jewish leaders who were charged with Memorizing, teaching, copying, and explaining Jewish law. And so these were the guys who knew what the Sabbath was. They knew that you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Uh, they, this was part of their identity. And they, they would actually weave pieces of God's law on paper into their braids. Um, these were not powerless people. These were the powerful of the society. Right? They're educated people. They are privileged people. Um, they not only can navigate society, they can influence society. And they have done it in a way where they receive honor and power from people. And the problem with that is that if being powerless positions our hearts 
to, to, to primes them to receive mercy. Being powerful primes our hearts to be hard because it prevents us from recognizing that we are needy, that we have a need, right? The Pharisees are saying, yep, we're separated from God. We know that because we're separated from God. And the way to get back to him is to follow all these rules. And maybe it's not, you know, observing the Sabbath exactly, but it's certainly memorizing and following and making sure that other people are like doing their due diligence. It's all about obedience, for this group of people, for this powerful. And because they know the word, they know the rules, they think pretty highly of themselves. And it's within their power to meet this need to reconnect with God. And so they're taking the power to offer that mercy away from Jesus, and they're saying, oh, I can do it my, on, my, on my own. The difference is the powerless receive mercy and then respond with obedience because we're offering up our hearts to you. The powerful sometimes can be hardened to that and they think, oh, it's obedience and then mercy. And Jesus is saying today, uh-uh, it's mercy first. You don't do anything to receive that mercy. You just take it. And then it's obedience because you love me. Um, and when this paralyzed guy of 38 years is walking down the street with his mat, and he's uh, coming up to the Pharisees, and they see this guy who has been paralyzed for 38 years and just happens to have been healed, they don't say, what happened? Or they don't say, who healed you so that maybe they have something for us? We have a need too. What do they say? They're like, uh, you're breaking the Sabbath. You should not be carrying that bed, which is ridiculous to be thinking that this, they have seen a mercy of God and all they are focused on is this rule that is being broken. And it's because those folks are finding peace and rest in their own power, their own ability to follow law, to follow obedience as the means to meet this need, right? And how does the guy respond to them? He says, uh, I'm carrying this mat and I'm working on the Sabbath because some guy healed me from being paralyzed for 38 years and he told me to do this. So that's why I'm doing this. He responds with obedience and allegiance to Jesus. And then the Jewish leadership say, well, who was this man who told you to get up and take your mat and walk? Who's, the, who, who's teaching you that it's okay to work on the Sabbath? And he goes, I don't know. I never, never caught his name, right? And we recognize that the powerless can receive, are in a position to receive mercy, and the powerful are in a position, are not in a position to receive mercy because they have hardened of heart. Um, and... I think there are so many times in the New Testament when Jesus <clears throat> interacts with people and the response is receiving mercy, responding with obedience and allegiance. Even, um, you know, he's healing the blind, he is healing lepers, he's he healed another paralyzed guy. Uh, they're all responding with obedience and allegiance, except the powerful. When they come into contact with the mercy of God, they're blind to it because they find their rest in their own power instead of God's power. Um, and I think that the Jewish leaders of the time uh, felt threatened. And so they want to they know, <laughs> is the guy that healed you this guy Jesus that we're hearing about? They knew who he was, and they knew what he was doing. Jesus wasn't the new guy on the block at this point. This is John chapter 5. We're five chapters in to the ministry of Jesus Christ. And at this point, he had called most of his disciples. He had taught around Judea. He had flipped over the tables in the temple when people were 
using the, the temple, the house of God, when they were using that to make money and, and exchange money, he flipped over the temples and he drove out the Jewish leadership with a whip. And he said, I will destroy this temple and raise it again in three days. Um, he, John the Baptist, had already been proclaiming his way. Jesus had already many times said that he was the son of God and he was God. Um, and every time he, he comes into interaction with the Jewish leadership, it's a confrontational but holy interaction. Right? And so the Jewish leadership, the Pharisees, are feeling threatened by this gospel based on grace, not obedience. Because that goes against where they're finding their peace and their rest, which is silly. Um, and, you know, I think that um, the teachings of grace over performance threaten us because that means we have to admit that <laughs> we have a need that we are unable to meet ourselves. And that's hard for us to do sometimes. And the truth is, we are all spiritual creatures. We're all spiritual beings created in the image of God who have a need. The need to be connected with our dad. Our spiritual dad. To feel that rest in the peace that we're supposed to be feeling. And sometimes it's just easier to put it into your, to find it in a 401k, right? Or to find it in a relationship. Because it's concrete. And there's a messy spirituality that has to happen when we sit and actually think, which can be awkward for some of us to think, okay, I need to actually stop here and think about myself as a spiritual being who has a spiritual need that only God can meet. Um, Jesus communicates with the Pharisees, right? We know that the guy didn't know who, who Jesus' name was. Jesus meets him later. He reveals himself to the guy, and then the guy goes and tells the Jewish leadership, oh, by the way, the guy that healed me, he, he, that was Jesus who did that. And that's why he has my allegiance. And so how do the Pharisees respond? They plan to persecute him. And Jesus talks to the Pharisees. Once again, we see holy confrontation. It's confrontation, but it's holy confrontation because it comes from Jesus. And uh, he says that my father is working until now, and I am also working. And in that, he's again revealing his deity, that he is the son of God, and he is God. And he's also revealing like, the true purpose of the Sabbath, that it is a framework where we are to connect with our spiritual dad. It's not about just not doing something on a Saturday or a Sunday. Um, and this isn't even the first time that Jesus has healed on the Sabbath, has done work on the Sabbath. In Mark chapter uh, 3, it says that another time Jesus went into the synagogue and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. And they're talking about Jewish leadership. Uh, and so they watched him closely to see if he would heal the man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, stand up in front of everybody. And then he looked at the crowd and he said, which is lawful to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to evil? To save life or to kill? And none of the Jewish leadership said anything. And then it says that he looked around at the crowd and in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and it was completely restored. And then he, uh, the Pharisees went out after that, and they plotted to kill Jesus. Right? And so at no point is Jesus tripping over words to explain himself to this Jewish leadership who, who memorize the law and know the law. He is the Son of God, God who created the law. And it says that Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament law. It's not saying this is not important. He's saying, let's look big picture. Let's see the forest through the trees. The purpose of this law is for you to recognize that you have a need that you cannot meet. Jesus was sent to meet that need. Um, 
And the Pharisees don't like that. And so they plot to kill him. And the truth is that we all have this same need. We cannot earn God's love through obedience to a law, but we can receive it from mercy as long as we position our hearts to recognize that we are powerless to meet that spiritual need. That is how we position ourselves to receive the mercy of God. We can't do it through obedience. Receive his love and mercy through recognizing our own powerlessness. And then we respond by giving our hearts back to him. Take it and seal it for thy courts above. We respond with obedience and with allegiance. And the good news is that Jesus and the Father never stop working to that end. They don't stop on Saturdays or Sundays trying to connect with us and trying to offer us spiritual peace to get back in the nest. They don't stop looking for us. You know, there's actually, there's a missing chapter to this book. And the missing chapter is the perspective of these few days from the mom. Because when the baby goes gone, goes missing, you can guarantee that the mom isn't just sitting waiting for that baby to come back. And anyone who has a child or who has a little kid in their life who's under their care uh, and who means something to them, <laughs> who you love, you know that when that kid goes missing, and it happens, Stacy knows what I'm talking about, if, when it happens, uh, you will stop at nothing. There is no amount of work that is too much work for you to bring your kid back. Um, and we know that this mom is, she filed a missing bird report within day one of the bird going missing. She's checking his Facebook account and checking his tweets to see, get it? <laughs> to see where he was last. We know that she's remortgaging the nest to provide some, some uh, reward money or when, when, if anyone knows anything about this bird. She's not stopping until she gets him back. Um, you know, Sarah and I were uh, in Oregon two years ago, and <laughs> she's shaking my head, she doesn't want to tell this. Uh, and we have a little kid who is, means a lot to us. He's not our son, but he's very close to us. Um, who we were, he was under our care, and we took him uh, to a big state park in Oregon. And it was a beautiful spot, and we had our own two kids with us. And um, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but just don't tell the Marquards about this. They're out of town. We don't want them to know. Uh, and um, we are watching the kids on the playground. And there's a playground, and there's a huge hiking trail, and there's a big parking lot, and there's a beautiful lake, and there's picnic sites. And we're watching the kids on the playground. And we're like, okay, we got three kids, Owen, Zach, and this mystery kid, and, uh, who happens to be the blondest kid you'll ever meet. And, um, and so when you're a parent and you're watching the playground you know, okay, I've got a, a dark-haired guy, I've got a red-haired guy, and I've got a blonde-haired guy. And as long as we see three, we're good. And that was fine until we realized that the blonde-haired guy uh, wasn't our blonde-haired guy. It was a different guy. And when it's time to do a head count, we're missing Edison. And I think we were holding water bottles <laughs> and backpacks, and we just dropped, we dropped them. And I scooped up Zach, Sarah scooped up Owen, and we just started running. We, we had other friends there who had met us at the playground. We didn't communicate anything to them. We threw everything down, and we started running and yelling Edison's name. And we're like football fields apart from each other and like trying to be like, he's not over here, he's not over here. We found him after probably three minutes of looking. Um, and he was by the lake in the sand playing, two years old, by a lake. And we could not see him from where the playground was. Um, our hearts stopped. And, and our only focus, the, our whole dashboard was wiped clean. And the only focus was get this kid back. And it's not because we were nervous <laughs> about 
having to explain how we lost a kid. It's because we love him. He's part of our family. And, and we're going to do anything that we can to get him back into the safety and the rest of who we are. And the thought of him going up to like a stranger, looking for comfort, looking for rest, just like sends chills down my spine. Um, it's, it's just like a bird going to ask a tractor, are you my mother? Right? We have no faith in Edison to be able to, to navigate what's happening right now. But I tell you what, if we couldn't find him, we would still be in Oregon today looking for that kid. And the truth is that you and I have the same spiritual father who, when his kids are disconnected with him, when they're searching to, to fulfill a spiritual need in something other than being in his presence, in his rest, he will stop at nothing to reveal that to us. And so when the Pharisees are saying, hey, you're working on the Sabbath? Man, that's not right. Jesus says, hey, my father's working up until now, and so am I. And he's saying, we're going to stop at nothing. We're not taking a Saturday off. We're not going to not work on a day when we can offer mercy to a kid who needs to be in the rest and presence and safety of a spiritual dad. Open your eyes, Pharisees. And Jesus does this in a confrontational, in a, in a holy way. And you know, you know, Jesus working on the Sabbath this day. Okay, so when I'm on occasion, I think I come up here and I do this teaching like three times a year, maybe, maybe a little bit more. And usually I know a couple weeks in advance. And the way it works is I know the text that I'm supposed to teach on, and it's kind of ruminating in my brain for a week or two. And then the week before, Sarah becomes a single parent, and we go to work, we come home, we do dinner, I go out. And I spend about three hours or so, four hours at Smith College, just kind of like rewriting and, and praying a little and, and working through this and trying to like organize it. And on Wednesday this week, I was sitting there and, you know, we're in this sermon series right now, it's called Reveal. And I just felt like, oh, reading this for like the fifth time or something, I'm like, holy smokes. The work, the deep work that Jesus did in Bethesda that day was not just healing a paralyzed guy. But he's actually setting up his own death on the cross by what he's doing on this day. The work is not just physical work, but there's a deeper spiritual work that's happening today. And we can tell that when we look at how he responds to the paralyzed guy. Because when he asks him, do you want to be healed? The guy doesn't say yes. He doesn't say no. He just kind of says, what's the point? And then Jesus says, get up take your mat and walk. He does not say, get up and walk. And had he said that, would the guy have still received mercy? Yeah. Would he still have responded with obedience and allegiance? Yeah. But what wouldn't have happened if he left the bed part out? There would be no confrontation with the Pharisees. So when Jesus is saying, get up, take your bed and walk, he is orchestrating this confrontation, right? And then the confrontation happens but the guy didn't know Jesus' name because Jesus slipped out of the crowd. And we might think, oh, okay, Jesus is off the hook. The Pharisees aren't going to get mad. They're not going to try and hurt him because they don't know who he was. But we know that they did know who he was. What does Jesus do? He seeks out the paralyzed guy at the temple and he goes, hey, looking good. Remember me? I'm Jesus. I'm the guy who healed you. By the way, go and sin no more so something worse won't, won't happen to you. And in that, he's saying, listen, you've been healed physically, but you don't want to sin because 
that separates from you from God, and, and that is a deeper paralysis than what you were experiencing. And I, I think he's saying that to the guy because he wants him to know, I'm Jesus, I'm the guy who healed you, I'm also God. I can speak into what sin is. I can speak into what is going to connect you or disconnect you from God. So in case there's any confusion about who I am, I'm Jesus, I'm God. Go tell those guys. And the guy goes back out, and he tells the Pharisees. And how do the Pharisees respond? We're going to kill him. Right? So what is revealed to us is that Jesus has a deeper work than just going and waving a magic finger and healing people because he can. There's a deeper work in the mercies of God. And that is to bring people back to our spiritual dad. People who have a spiritual need that they can't meet on their own, but Jesus can meet on the cross. Sometimes I think of the, the road that Jesus took to get to the cross. Not the physical road, but actually like the steps he took to get there. And I think, oh man, those Pharisees were jerks to Jesus. Those soldiers, they were jerks to Jesus. And on Wednesday, I'm reading this, and I'm like, oh, Jesus orchestrated all of this. Not only, he wasn't just responding to the bad stuff that was happening to him in an in a obedient way to his father, but he was actually physically the puppet master behind getting the Pharisees to kill him. He is hand-delivering the prosecution their case. And why is he doing that? Because he loves us. He is a, a dad bird who's going to do anything he can do to get his kids back. And that is the deeper work that is happening this day on the Sabbath. It blew my mind on Wednesday when I realized that. It like changed how I view Good Friday and Easter. That this is not Jesus overcoming death only. It is Jesus recognizing that he's the only one who can meet our needs and he's going to do anything within his power to make sure that that happens. And it's a, it's a deeper work that is done on a Sabbath day. Um, so what, what is required of us? It is to recognize the need. That's it. It is to recognize that we are spiritual beings created by a spiritual dad who are separated from him. And, and God is offering the mercy through faith in Jesus and what he did on the cross. Our only job is to receive it. And so if you're here today and you're like, man, I really, I really find rest in my finances. Or I really find rest in, in the size of my house. What are we dwelling on? What do we dwell on when we think of if just this piece would fit in, I'd be okay. I'd feel okay. I'd feel real true, real true peace. Then I would encourage you this morning to stop and think about what God is communicating, what he's revealing to us today in John chapter 5. That we're spiritual beings with a spiritual need that only he can meet. And to recognize that in our own powerless, that is when we receive the mercy. That's when we get real true spiritual rest. And we are invited back into the nest based on what Jesus did on the cross. And just like the Sabbath is a framework for us to remember, to, oh yeah, God is who we find rest in. God is who we find rest in. God is who we find rest in. Jesus gives us another framework as a church uh, to remind us that the work of Jesus is what gets us back into the nest. It is what gets us in that place to receive the mercy to begin with. And that framework is called communion. And every church I've been to does this. Uh, where, and it, it looks different in different churches, but it's, it's, it's set on the same framework where Jesus is modeling for us that, that really important work, that really important work that he did on the Sabbath on the cross. And so this is part of our week too. 
It's not only that we connect with God and we rely and rest in God, Shabbat Shalom, but it is also that we recognize that Jesus did the work for that. We can't do it on our own. And so Jesus models that through um, the breaking of bread and through a cup of wine. And he says, this bread is like my body that is broken for you. He says, this is a work that I am doing for you to meet a need that you can't meet yourselves. And that is why we use bread as part of communion. And then in the same way, he took a cup. And this is, he's doing this on the night before he was betrayed. Not a surprise. This was not a surprise to him. And he took the cup and he says, this is my blood. This is the cup of the new and the everlasting covenant. When you drink it, remember me. And he models this for us to do it every week so that we can recognize that he is the one who did the work. Church attendance, doesn't matter. Your tithing history, doesn't matter. Cheating on taxes, cheating on your wife, not cheating on taxes, doesn't matter. Nothing's good enough to get you in a relationship with the Holy God. What is good enough is the work that Jesus did on the Sabbath day. And that is good news. Amen? Amen. All right, so I'm going to pray for us, and then I'm going to invite you up to take communion. And the way we do it here is you just come on up either table, you take the bread, you take the cup, you go back to your seats, and just at your own, when you're ready, you can take it at your seats. Uh, And then Cindy and the worship team will come up and we'll sing a few more songs. Um, But I would encourage you when you're sitting there with the bread and the cup to think of the work that Jesus did on that Sabbath day and and recognize our own powerlessness and just respond by giving him your heart with obedience and allegiance and thanks. Because we have a heavenly father who's at work for us and doesn't take days off. Dear Lord, we thank you for the Sunday. We thank you for uh, just the the truth that we learn in John chapter 5. Uh, that even 2,000 years after this happened, we still get access to, to it. Thanks for your Holy Spirit that guides truth in our hearts. And um, we just pray that your, um, the work that you have done would become real to us today. Uh, just how much you love us, that you're just not willing to stop for us, Father. That would be real in our hearts. We love you, and we're here today because of you. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.